0: Well Father, we're grateful this morning that we are those who did seek and ask and knock, and we are those who found and received, and it was open to us. And we praise you and thank you for the privilege in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> we started off this morning with the great hymn of Martin Luther's, a mighty fortress, we call it, um, written somewhere. In the 16th century, I'm going to guess in the 1520s or 30s, because Martin Luther did a great lot of writing in those days. Um, he was quite a musician, by the way. the, the name Luther is refers to a person who makes stringed instruments, like lutes. He's a luter, and uh, so he was uh, very proficient on certain instruments and certainly well versed in the um, in the art of writing music and musical notes and melodies. And he wrote that great hymn, but he was German. Funny how it rhymes in English. Do you ever think about that? Um, I do remember one of my favorite poets of all time is a local man named Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Now, I'm surely some of you have heard of him, and if you haven't, shame on you. But uh, he's from the Boston area, and he was the great translator in those days. He translated Dante's Inferno from. Um, or actually, the Divine Comedy of Dante from medieval times, uh, in, from uh, ancient Italian into modern English. So we could read, so we could read that book as well. And he was the great translator. He he spoke several languages and translated them. He made there's there's many versions of translations of that hymn, but Longfellow was one of the first and most significant that translated it into English. Um, So I just thought I'd point that out to you. It takes a lot of work for a great hymn or even the scriptures to come to us in our language. It took centuries of work, and if you were here the other night, you know some people lost their lives for daring to do it, to put it in a language that the people could understand. It was as though God spoke and was hoping that no one would understand it. Um, And people had different languages, and so they got translated into those languages, as were the hymns which began as Psalms in the Old Testament, and we have all those songs translated into our language as well. But this morning, in continuing with the Gospel Tales, anyone know what number we're on since I didn't write it down? I think it's 16, Gospel Tales 16, but we don't need to number them. And I'm going to ask you to turn to the Gospel of Mark this morning, the Gospel of Mark chapter 7, and I'll read the first 23 verses of Mark chapter 7, and make my remarks based on this text. And so Mark writes, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. And when they saw his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders and when they come from the marketplace they do not eat unless they wash and there are many there are many other things which they have received and hold like the washing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels and couches and the pharisees and scribes asked him why do your disciples not wash according to the tradition of the elders but eat bread with unwashed hands and he answered and said to them Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, and laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. And he said to them, All too well, You reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might might have received from me is Corban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand, there is nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him. The things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And so he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said, What comes out of man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of man proceed evil thoughts. Adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. O Father, in Jesus' name, open up the deep meaning of this, your holy word, we pray this morning. Amen. So what do you think? Jesus doesn't like to wash up. Is that what you got out of this? Well, I'm going to take this apart a little bit, (laughs) and um, hopefully we can unpack some of these issues here that are at play. But verse 1 says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled hands, that is, unwashed, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding to the tradition of elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups and pitchers and vessels and couches. Hope you're not home washing those couches. (laughs) There's a couple of things I want to deal with before we get to the matter of this washing. All right? First of all, we should note that during the intertestamental period, there were a great number of fundamental developments that happened among the Jewish people. Now, what do I mean by the intertestamental period? You know you have a Bible. A Bible. It consists of, I don't know, a bunch of books. A lot of books, right? I think there's 66, if I'm not mistaken. There's 39 Old Testament books, but those books were finished four centuries before Jesus was born. So when Jesus came into the world, the Bible only consisted of the Old Testament, the laws of God, the story of creation, and of the flood, and the Psalms of David, and the prophecies of Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all the prophets. So they had their 39 books, and that... Canon, if you will, it's called the canon of Scripture, the standard of Scripture, was closed. Nothing was added to it since the 5th century B.C. Now, that's a long period. So in that intertestamental period, before the New Testament was written, a lot of things developed in Israel, like these traditions that Jesus doesn't like. All right? Now, the New Testament came around based on the words of Christ. So it, wasn't, it didn't happen in the time of Christ's life. But the apostles and others wrote those things down after Jesus died. Okay? One of the oldest New Testament books is the Gospel of Matthew. Another contender for the earliest would be James and so forth. They're not in chronological order in your Bible. All right, So you have these things, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you have 400 years and several empires being risen up and conquered during that time, and yet the Jewish people are still there waiting for their Messiah. And so Jesus comes on the scene. So in the New Testament, there are many things that we find that were not present in the Old Testament. They rose up in this intertestamental period. For one, the synagogue system. There were synagogues scattered about like local churches throughout Israel. In fact, throughout the world, the known world, which was uh, Europe, Asia, and Africa, northern Africa, right? So there was the synagogue system where the Jews could go in a town. If there was more than 10 uh, worshipping Jews in a city or town, they could start a synagogue, and they would and They'd appoint elders, and they'd have services much like we do today. Very similar, in fact. But that whole synagogue system wasn't in the Old Testament. It happened in the intertestamental period. So that's one thing. The temple complex that played such a part in the social and religious lives of the Jews was not present in the Old Testament. Now, I want to um, qualify that a bit. Of course, Solomon built the temple somewhere in 900 BC, all right? And it lasted for a few hundred years until Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came in, burned it to the ground, and it was done for, for another couple of hundred years until it was rebuilt by Zerubbabel in the Old Testament. All right? But the religious and social life of the Jews did not revolve around that temple complex in that time the way they did in Jesus' time when Herod rebuilt it and had that huge, wonderful, glorious, um, one of the wonders of the ancient world temples that Jesus taught in daily. And you'll see in the book of Acts, the apostles go there and they teach. Remember at the gate called beautiful, Peter healed a man who was lame in his feet. And all this, their whole Jewish social life revolved around the temple complex. And that came all out of the intertestamental period. That temple was finished just before um, the time of, of Christ's ministry. All right, there were no Pharisees. We say this starts off the Pharisees came to him, the scribes came to him. No Pharisees in the Old Testament. They also rose up in that intertestamental period. The scribes as a group, Ezra was the scribe in the Old Testament, but as a religious sect of people with authority in uh, government and in the temple, the scribes weren't, weren't a group in the, uh, until the intertestamental period as well. Um, the Pharisees came out of the Maccabees, which you can read about in the books called the Maccabees, um, Uh, They were a sect that emerged from that great Jewish dynasty, and they began as a very good thing. That's until Jesus came on the scene and exposed so much of their religious hypocrisy. They arose in order to defend the Jewish way of life against foreign influences. They were strict nationalists who believed that the promised Messiah would usher in a new era of Hebrew hegemony in the Middle East. In the time of Jesus, there was... A lot of freedom among the Jews to worship the way they wanted, but they were not autonomous. The Roman Empire ran them. If you remember, in order to crucify Jesus, the priests had to go to the Roman governor and ask permission to do it. Only he could give the order of execution. So they they weren't an autonomous state. But people like the Maccabees and the Pharisees after them were these political groups that were always trying to uh, pull Israel back out of the grip of these great other empires. The Sadducees were, an Old Testament, were not an Old Testament group, but an intertestamental group. They came out of that time as well. They were wealthy, social-minded activists, but they had no love of tradition and of religion at all. Isn't it interesting that the Sadducees were in charge of the temple? The ones who didn't believe in the Old Testament, didn't believe in the prophecies of Messiah, didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. These were the people running the church, basically. Those who had no love for things religious or for the word of God. And so Jesus, of course, opposed these groups, and they came out to oppose him here. Now, there's a number of other significant things that emerged in this time, like the Septuagint. That was the, that was the translation of the Old Testament into the Greek language. That came about in the 2nd century BC. There was other groups, the scribes, the Herodians, and even wonderful new developments in the celebration of Passover. They couldn't have Passover the way they had it in Jesus' time, in the intertestamental time. They didn't have the temple complex prepared to receive hundreds of thousands of pilgrims every year. And then finally, there was one other development that happened between the time where Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, was written, and Matthew's Gospel, the first book of the New Testament, there emerged in Jewish life a whole slew of traditions that did not come from the Word of God. And why wouldn't that be the case? With all those centuries going by, Hebrews didn't even speak Hebrew anymore. They spoke Aramaic. They spoke Greek. Everyone in the world spoke the Greek language that Alexander the Great had spread to all the continents, right? The known continents, I should say. The American Indians were not speaking Greek. I just want to put that out there. Um, So all these traditions emerged. (coughs) Who could blame them? There were 400 years that the revelation of God was silent. There was no prophet in the land. No prophet emerged on the scene in Israel in the time of the Persian conquest and the advent of Christ. And in the meantime, the Persians were conquered by the Greeks, the Greeks were conquered by the Romans, and the Jews were conquered by all of them. And each new empire came on the scene with its language and its culture and its gods and its religion. And so the people, the scholars, the priests, um, the Levites developed their own traditions. And one by one, they forgot the traditions that were handed down to them and written in the word of God by Moses. They claimed to follow Moses, but they didn't follow Moses. And Jesus was always showing them this hypocrisy. And so I would ask, who could blame them for adding all these traditions? Well, apparently the Lord God of heaven blamed them. Now, it's one thing, friends, to create new traditions. It's another for these traditions to replace the ones that God gave us to honor and commanded that we keep. There's the difference, friends. Keep that in your mind. We have great liberty in Christ. We're not under the ancient law. We can create traditions, but we can't wipe out the traditions he gave us. Those are the sacred ones. Ours are just the ones we like. And so God was essentially forgotten in Jewish life. He didn't speak, but his word was inscribed in writing. The 39 books of the Old Testament... Uh, was the written word of God and it was entrusted to them, but it was not enough. Is it any wonder that the secrets regarding the time and place and identity of the Messiah was not known to them? They didn't study the word. They should have known Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't study the word and the prophecies and didn't know it had to be him. And so when he arrived, instead of honoring him, they come out like they do in this passage to berate and accuse him. And they accuse him for not honoring their traditions. They not only berate and accuse him, but they travel many miles to do it. And so another point of interest to me is the next mention, that the religious elite, the Pharisees and the scribes, come from Jerusalem. Now we find in our passage that Jesus, if you look in the previous paragraph, was in a little coastal city named Gennesaret, which is in Galilee. Galilee is in the north, Jerusalem's in the south. 80 or 100 miles away, these men traveled on foot just to accuse Jesus of breaking the laws of their traditions. And so in that time, the religious elite came from Jerusalem. And because they were from Jerusalem, they were considered a higher authority than the local leaders. They weren't really a higher authority, but people respected them as that. And so they came there for no other reason than to pick a fight with the itinerant preacher from Nazareth in order to give the local leaders an example to follow in opposing Christ. They didn't want anyone following him and his traditions, but them and their traditions. You see how they set this up? As two warring camps. They feared that some of the locals would receive him, and so they did. You may, may remember Jairus, the elder of the Capernaum um, synagogue where Peter worshipped, who he came to Christ to heal his daughter. You know, it's funny, when you're really in trouble, I think you'd rather go to Jesus than accuse him. And that's what a lot of people did. Now, as I read the text, it, it, it occurs to me that the, the tradition of the Pharisees concerning washing and cleanliness rituals around eating food are pretty extraordinary, I'm quite impressed that such an ancient society found a way to keep from spreading disease. It seemed to me all the washing was a good thing, don't you think? I'll also note that the Old Testament contains many examples of ritual washing obligations. So their custom, it seems to me, is not a bad custom. In fact, it's a good custom, well-intentioned. But I want to note to you, it's not the custom itself that's objected to here by the Lord. And if you allow a relevant comparison in our day, it's not the practice that offends the Lord, it's the requirement. It's the mandate. Insofar as Jesus, on several occasions, takes the privilege of deity to suspend ceremonial law, right, that he'll in the end not have as a binding requirement upon the church, you can't just make up traditions and then mandate that everybody follow them. And you can do that if you're, a, if you're uh, in a, um, a place of political leadership. But once you say it's a religious acquire- requirement by God, Christian peoples have to rebel against it. And that's what Jesus is doing here. It's not the custom that's objected to. How could it be? It's washing your hands before you eat. It's the fact that they're saying this is the road into God's presence, this human external cleanliness. So even in that time, even in the estimation of Jesus, God-given liberties trump government-imposed mandates. Now, if you think I sort of made that up and dug this out because that's what we're going through today, I want to read you something from the 16th century on this very point. Actually, the 17th century, Matthew Henry, um, an English commentator and theologian, writes this very thing. He said, what the tradition of the elders was, by it, all were enjoined to wash their hands before a meal. And then he writes this, a cleanly custom and no harm in it. And yet as such, to be overnice in it, discovers too great a care about the body, which is of the earth. But they placed religion in it and would not leave it indifferent as it was in its own nature. And then he writes this, friends. People were at liberty to do it or not do it, but they interposed their authority and commanded all to do it upon pain of excommunication. Pretty relevant application when you think about it, isn't it? Now, I must say this, and I want you to know this up front. I'm in favor of the Pharisees' tradition. I wish everyone would wash their hands, particularly the part about washing hands after exposure to the marketplace. I think that's a great idea, don't you think? It's extraordinary that this ancient society, even apart from reliable scientific knowledge about microorganisms and germs and bacteria, figured this out. Washing could ward off disease. They knew that washing was a great preventative of disease. However, it's the imposition of the tradition that was the offense to Christ. And it's not due to the imposition of washing that the Lord objects to, it's that the imposition of a series of man-made laws of which this is only one part that are imposed and treated as though they're God's law. Friends, in the Reformed churches, we don't tell you something is God's law if it's man's law. And we don't tell you something is man's law when it's God's law. Now, we're bound to God's law, and we're bound to man's law because God says we must follow the governing authorities. But when the man-made laws make God's laws of no effect, we have to choose God over man. And that's what Jesus is doing. And by the way, he gets crucified for doing it. Talk about Donnie giving it all up. (laughs) Um, So I'm in favor of of some of these traditions. What we must not lose sight of is the danger to religion that government can have. In this particular case, the washing statute was part of a greater set of pharisaical traditions that carried with them the force of law. The danger in this system is that the law of God becomes shrouded and of lesser importance to the man-made laws of priests and prelates. That's the danger. We see the same thing in the Roman Catholic tradition, which many of us come from. All of my family's Roman Catholic. We came out. There's a lot of traditions there that were made up over the centuries. Um, And they're taught as though you must obey these traditions in honor to honor God, in order, rather, to honor God. But that's not the case, we find. Jesus said, no, only the traditions God gave us are required to honor God. So we see this same thing there, Um, and a breach of it is, is treated as an offense against God. Remember the indulgences from the other evening, right? There's nothing in the Old Testament about selling salvation to people and building yourself a castle. There's nothing there. A pretense... Of a path to salvation, friends, is what the indulgences were. The real path to salvation is faith in Christ, which the indulgences hid the truth of by claiming to be that thing that gave you access to God when really it was just your faith. Your love of Jesus Christ gives you access to God, not some man-made document that you paid for. And that's the danger in tradition, friends, that we look out for. Now we can see from the passage that strictly adhering to this seemingly innocuous tradition. You know what innocuous means? It means harmless. But I like to say innocuous. Now you know. So the next time I say harmless, I'm going to say, you know what harmless means? And you'll all go, it means innocuous. Um, So this seemingly harmless tradition is the thing which offends God Not the individual liberty to choose not to obey or to take part in the tradition. It's my opinion that Jesus used this infraction of tradition to prompt the argument with the Pharisees. I believe he came out and just didn't wash hands and brought this thing on. He wanted to point out to them to defang these burdensome laws. Take the teeth out of these laws. Let the people know, you can wash or not wash. Um, but you don't lose the love of God by not washing. And so the Lord offers them this egregious example. So he gives them this example of how traditions override mandates or divine mandates. He said, Moses said, and as we all know, it's one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. And it says, he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. Did you know not honoring your parents in Old Testament times was a capital offense? Interesting how highly he held that up. We would say, that's crazy. But in those days, they held up the honoring your mother and father as a very high uh, place before God. And he says, that's what God says, honoring your father and mother. But then he says, but you say, if a, father, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corbin, that's a gift to God, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you've handed down. In other words... You're not required to take care of your parents in their old age if you don't want to. All you have to do is declare that, um, that the uh, money that you would help them with is a gift to God, and then you just leave them on your own. Jesus thought that was reprehensible. And then he said, in many such things you do. He didn't name them all. But here's the sin in it, friends. Here's the offense that the simple, harmless tradition poses for people of faith. Because people who will have faith in Christ must strive for and fight for the liberty to express that faith. And these are being denied that liberty. And how are they denied the liberty? They're not taught the word of God. They're taught the word of men instead. That's all you have to do is shield it, is hide the truth with another thing that seems really good and sublime and holy, like washing. And we'll present that as the thing that pleases God instead of faith in Christ. Because these people hated Christ. He was a threat to their authority. And Jesus argues with them all throughout the Gospels. As you read the Gospels, you'll see that. So if the disciples said to Jesus, why don't we just wash as they would have us wash? What's the harm in it, right? He might say to them, we'll only wash if they stop demanding it. As long as they pretend that their requirement is God's requirement, we can't take part in it because we're witnessing to other people that what they're saying is true when it's demonstrably false. And so the disciples go on to ask him about these very things. And the Lord, in his great love for his disciples, takes them aside and he explains it to them. And so he says this. So Mark writes, when he had called the multitude to himself, notice how he had all these disciples now. He calls them a multitude. He called them aside He said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There's nothing that enters a man from outside that can defile him. Friends, you can be as dirty, filthy as any coal miner or any homeless person on the street with no access to facilities, and that is not the kind of filth that offends God. That's what he's saying. The things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, please try to understand what I'm saying to you. Friends, that's the gospel. What he just said there is a gospel. What comes out of man? In other words, what's already in you is what offends God. The gospel of Christ tells us there is nothing a person can do to free himself of all the things and all the sin that lurks in the heart of men. And Jesus named them. He said... From within the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adultery, fornication, murder, theft, covetousness, blasphemy, lewdness. He names all these things. Those come from inside of a man. Those don't come from the dirt from the ground that got on the man. Friends, try to remember something about dirt. God invented dirt. He doesn't hate it. (laughs) The way these Pharisees seem to. All right? And so if all the things that offend God come from within the man, there's no washing that can clean your soul. You can't clean your soul by washing it. There's no ritual that can atone for the sins we commit daily. There's no indulgence that we can buy. The only indulgence that can free us is not from the priests. It's not from the Pope. It's the blood of Christ. That's the only thing that washes us inwardly. And even that cannot be bought. It cannot be bought by a man because we can't afford it. It would cost us our lives. And the whole point is we're trying to save our lives, right? We're trying to reap eternal life. Why have religion if there's no promise of an afterlife? So I may say, and I've said before, that I agree with washing before meals. It's a good thing. In fact, I I require it of my children. Well, when they were little, they are all men. Now they do what they want. I also agree with washing cups and plates and pitchers and furniture. I like clean stuff. And so far as I know, there's no law against doing such things. And I'll take it even one step further. Even if there is a mandate law that I must do all these things, I have no reason to rebel against such laws. But if the authority says to me that I must wash so that I may become acceptable to God, well, then I must resist because I'm denying My faith in Christ, who makes me acceptable to God, and only that faith in Christ. I must resist because if I wash in compliance with such laws and traditions, then I deny the true gospel. And the true gospel tells me that my soul may only be cleansed by the blood of Christ and not the traditions and the detergents of men. The blood of Christ is the detergent of the soul. Faith in him crucified. And so with the Pharisees, while the Pharisees are demanding outward cleanliness, they wallow in inward defilement. Remember Jesus said to them this in another place. Jesus was always fighting with the Pharisees, by the way. And in the end, they have their way and they call for him to to go to the cross. And they think they're rid of him. But see, a man who has no sin and therefore no reason to really wash can't be held by death. So he rises again and for the last 2,000 years has taunted them all the more. And so he says to them, you are whitewashed tombs. And he goes on to describe it. He says, which look beautiful outwardly. You ever see a beautiful tomb? You ever go in the graveyard and see these beautiful sepulchres with with, uh, great wooden uh, or iron gates and you open it up and there's all these sarcophagi in there and these uh, relief statues on each one and these wonderful sayings, a beautiful tomb? Inside those things, not so beautiful. And he says, the Pharisees are like that. He says... You're beautiful on the outside because they wore these beautiful robes with scripture verses on the, on the hems of their garments. He says, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness, just like a tomb. It's quite a vivid illustration, isn't it? The robes and the saucers and their cups are clean, friends. Their bodies and hands and feet are clean, but they've forgotten what their Old Testament taught them. While they're outwardly clean, they're inwardly dirty. And God looks not at the outward appearance of man, but of the inward appearance. And they should have known this, because Samuel the prophet said in the book of First Samuel this very thing. He said, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You can't just dress up for church and think God's happy. You can confess your sin, and he's quite pleased. Friends, there's a great reason why man does not look at the heart. He's not able to. And it doesn't really mean the physical blood pump, of the heart. I want you to know that it's the spiritual part of man that we talk about when we say the heart of man. Man is incapable of seeing the heart, and so God sent his prophet to tell the people what's in them because they can't see it. You know, we had a friend back when we were at Mullen Hill Church years ago, and he needed a heart transplant. And this was a Christian man, and he had years earlier asked, like we like to say, asked Jesus into his heart. And so he searched around, searched around, and he got this heart transplant. Our prayers were answered. He was saved. They great Doctors of our day put this new heart inside him He came back to church and we called him aside and said You're not saved anymore You've got to ask God into the new heart And of course it was a big joke We were kidding because it's not really about the blood pump part But for a minute we had him We had him going <laughs> Yeah it was kind of a mean joke now that I think about it Should have left that one alone um, And so the Pharisees have forgotten the word of God They couldn't see sin But they could see dirt So they washed away the dirt and kept the sin. That's what traditions tend to do. Wash away the dirt, keep the sin. They had the written word, but they forgot it. Friends, think of the trouble God went to to give them the 39 books of the Old Testament. All these people down through the ages. Moses was in 1500 BC. Abraham was 2000 BC, right? And Moses wrote the first five books. And then all the prophets, all the way up to the 5th century BC, wrote books. All different writers, inspired by God, wrote these books. And they compiled them as the word of God. And they put it aside. You know, there was a time in the Old Testament time, if you go into Old Testament, the books of the kings and you'll read, where the word of God was actually misplaced. They left it in a little dirty room in the temple, and they found it while they had the contractors in there refurbishing the temple you remember the story? They found the word of God and they started reading it and they realized how far they had strayed from what God demanded of them. They stopped reading. These were the priests. What do you do if you're a priest and you're not following the word of God? I don't understand it. But they dug it out and the king read it and he tore his clothes. That's what you did in those days to show that you were repenting. And then he did all these reforms on the society because they realized how far they had strayed. So they wrote the word of God and they forgot it. And and because they forgot it, they replaced it. And centuries came and went. And the so-called silent years came and went. But now the Lord's not silent. And now the Lord sent one voice crying in the wilderness of sin and unbelief. And so we read, Jesus came upon the scene. John declared the fulfillment of prophecy saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist declared Jesus. He came on the scene. After the years were silent for four and a half centuries, John came, the last Old Testament prophet, came on the scene and declared Christ. They all said that he'd come in a certain way, and he'd come out of Galilee, and he'd, be, and he'd be a man of sorrows, and he'd be crucified between two thieves. We knew all these things, and none of his bones would be broken at the crucifixion. We knew all these things. And John came and said, that's him. And they wouldn't hear John. Why? Why? They'd forgotten the tradition. Remember the passage of Scripture last evening that Cromwell, in our play, read to the people of the 16th century England? He said, There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and the man came for a witness to bear witness of that light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light every man coming into the world and so after 450 years the silent centuries were over John the Baptist is on the scene and John the Baptist was a lot of things but he wasn't silent the last of the Old Testament prophets emerged on the scene as promised and so if these scholars these Pharisees had only remembered the prophecies of their own tradition the ones they dedicated their lives to study they would have remembered the words of Isaiah from 700 years ago He spoke of John coming, but he didn't say when. And the time of his coming was their time. What a shame. Wait for it all your lives and as a people for centuries. And then the Messiah shows up and they don't know who he is. So much so that they reject him and berate him and kill him. And so the timing... The time of his coming was their time. What a shame these men missed it. So John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, emerges in Israel centuries later, but right on time. And, and this is what we read. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What about that tradition? And so if you're wondering why the Messiah would be so offended at being told to wash, friends, it was because he was already clean, Friends, dirt is no enemy to the soul. Sin is the enemy to the soul. And Jesus was clean from sin. There was no sin in him. He was clean of himself. And we're clean only if he makes us clean. And only belief in him makes us clean. Friends, it has been said, cleanliness is next to godliness. Did you ever hear that? Guess what? It's true only if the uncleanliness we speak of is the uncleanliness of sin. Then cleanliness is next to godliness. In fact, cleanliness is godliness. The dirtiest person in the world may be inwardly clean if he's trusted his soul to Christ. The outward dirt is easily washed off. The inward takes the blood of Christ to be made clean. And no amount of outward scouring can wash it off. And so Isaiah wrote again, We are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. In other words, there's nothing we can do to earn God's love. Friends, you can't earn God's love. That's why it's called grace. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't do anything to make God love you more than he does. And this is the the better news. You can't do anything to make God love you less than he does. He just decides if he loves you. That's up to him. We have no control over that. So in other words, friends, there's no good works that we can commit that can make us right before God. We can't just do this, 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 and now God receives us into eternal life. You hear people say all the time, oh, I've, I've lived a good life. I'm going straight to heaven. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible said Jesus lived a good life. Believe in him. You're going straight to heaven. There's no amount of earthly washing that can clean what sin has tarnished. But there is a way, only one, to perfect cleanliness. It is faith in Christ. Jesus said, I am the way. There's one way. He said, I am the way. There's one truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. There's one eternal life. Jesus said, I am the life. I'm the way and the truth and the life, he said. And he wasn't ashamed to say this. No one could come to me. No one can come to my Father unless he goes through me. So we couldn't clean ourselves. We could not clean our souls. We could not earn his love. We could not wash away sin, but he loved us anyway. That's called the mercy of God. We were unlovely, but he loved us anyway. Do you ever see someone that you really think just doesn't deserve your love or even a kind word, but you love them anyway? That's when you're most Christ-like in your life, loving the unlovely, loving someone that didn't deserve it. That's what God does. And so he made a way for us to pay for the sins and transgressions we have all our lives committed. He made a way, for not for us to pay for it, but for it to be paid. He took our penalty for us. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. And so we read this from the Gospel of John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And then John writes, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Friends, this is the gospel of Christ. And whatever traditions we add to our culture and our religious life, let our traditions be designed to point us always to this truth and not away from it. If our traditions become more important than the written word of God, friends, we're lost. But what's worse is that the message of God is lost to our children and to our children's children. If we lose it, who gives it to the next generation? That happened, as you saw, in the intertestamental period. Hundreds of years went by, and little by little, an attrition of the knowledge of the written word. And so what do you do? You fill in the void with man-made traditions that seem so godly. And they may even be good and godly traditions, but they can't save your soul. Only Christ can do that. If we shield the word of God from their eyes, we shield the only promise of eternal life, and that's the life and mission of God's true church in the world. There's no other mission because there's no other God. And it will be said of us what Jesus said of the Pharisees. The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. Friends, we've committed our church and our mission statement that we will not teach commandments of men as though they are commandments of God. Else we worship him in vain and not in spirit and truth the way he requires. O oh, Father, in Jesus' name we pray that you would ever give us this clear mission, O oh Lord of the church, to honor you in the ways that you would be honored, to recognize that eternal life is through faith in Christ and faith in Christ alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.